We've worshipped through song this morning. We've worshipped through our giving and our prayers. And now we're going to worship through giving our attention to the Word of God. So it is, it is an exciting time of year. Wow. Like spring is filled with high hopes and expectations. And our graduates, they've got dreams and plans. And you've got vacations planned. High hopes for those vacations. Love is blooming. People have high hopes for... We're trying to, like, contain it, but, you know, it's spring. There's weddings in the summer. I mean, it's just, we love this time of year. And our passage this morning is, like, the perfect timing. It's Jesus entering into Jerusalem before the Passover. It's in the spring. So think about all those things you get excited about in the spring. The people were already excited, and now Jesus is coming. And everybody has loaded onto his back all their hopes and dreams and expectations. And in less than a week, they're going to shout, crucify him. So that's where we're going this morning. You might be here this morning with with high hopes and dreams and expectations and I'm not here to crush them. But there's people here this morning who are having a hard time celebrating. You're in the middle of dealing with crushed dreams, unmet expectations. And I want to tell you that wherever you find yourself this morning... Jesus is here to meet you right where you're at. His word will speak truth into your life right where you're at. You may be all over the map. He is fixed. He is solid. He is immovable. He is unshakable. We've seen the flowers of the field wither and turn brown already. It's like our spring is over up here. And what does the scripture say? All men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen? Amen. So we'll go to God's word and we will not be disappointed this morning. Luke 19, verse 28, and after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road 
As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. What a scene. What a glorious scene. They were shouting joyfully for all the miracles he had done. Because if he can do those miracles, imagine what he can do for me. That is actually the right attitude to have. That is the right attitude to have. If he could do those miracles, what could he do for me? The problem is they had already decided in their hearts what he could do for them. They didn't wait to hear from him what he was going to do. And so we read this. In the midst of this great jubilation and celebration, Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time. Of your visitation. Well, that'll throw cold water on your flame there, huh? A reality check in the midst of this great celebration, high hopes and high expectations. Jesus already knows how this is going to turn out. They're going to turn on him in less than a week, they're going to choose a criminal. Over him to be released. So in this time where we celebrate rightly. A season of fresh hope. High expectations. Going to college or a new job. Or or there's a wedding or vacations. Whatever you're placing all your, your hopes for happiness and a bright future in. Remember this scene. We're going to look at this morning the tragedy of misguided expectations. If only you had known in this day the things which make for peace, but you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We start this morning by pointing out four aspects of the story that tell us that Jesus is indeed the king. They were worshiping him as the king. So it's not that he's not the king. It's not that he's not the king. He he was riding on transportation fit for a king. Now you might have a different idea of what a king should be riding into town on. Maybe a white stallion. Always think of that that ornate 
carriage they put the Pope in. You know, the bulletproof one. Or if you watch the royal wedding, you know, the fairy tale coach. Uh, a colt seems more like a, a pumpkin than a coach. But if we understand the traditions of the day, we would see what the crowd saw that day. Conquering kings, heroes rode in on a colt that had not yet been ridden. There was, there was significance in that act. This isn't the way you and I would ride into town. But this is the way kings ride into town. He said, go and find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. It's interesting, too, that he doesn't say, go and find one. It's already there. This is the sovereign plan of God unfolding. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. All the way up to his death and resurrection. In fact, he told them, right, exactly how events were going to unfold. That the crowd would reject the Son of Man, mock Him, scourge Him, crucify Him, but on the third day He would rise again. But they couldn't hear because they had their own narrative. And it didn't fit the narrative. They had their own expectations that were misguided. And so in this moment, they're responding according to their expectations, not the way things actually are. They rightly saw a king entering the city, but he's not the kind of king that they had in mind. But they don't know that yet. Not only is Jesus on transportation fit for a king, but he's also, uh, we see, uh, I'm, I'm using some alliteration here with suffixes, okay? So confiscation fit for a king. Okay, if you and I we just walked into somebody's yard and took their animal... <laughs> Like in Tehachapi, you get shot for that, right? You know? But here, they're, they're saying, well, what are you doing? And they say, what? The Lord has need of it. Oh, well, in that case. They knew who, the, who they were talking about. Jesus' name now was the name of fame. This was the man they had all been waiting for. This is Messiah. The Lord has need of it. And in fact, instead of being offended that they're taking the colt, I would imagine they were pretty excited that, hey, he's going to ride on my colt. Right? Hey, did you see him riding on that colt? Mm-hmm. That was ours. That was mine. You know, that, that, that's a high honor. So anyone else walks into somebody's yard and and takes their animal um, they're getting shot or they're going before the judge but when the king of kings does it then it's okay it's more than okay furthermore we see a salutation fit for a king when's the last time you laid your coat on the road for somebody to walk on 
right? Chivalry is dead. Hey, these people didn't have lots of coats like we do. So what's going on here? And we know from the other Gospels that they're waving, you know, palm fronds as well. These are traditions fit for the arrival of a king. What does laying your coat on the road kind of symbolize? You know, submission. You're walking all over me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm willfully submitting to your leadership by laying down one of my most prized possessions in front of you. And it's going to get trampled on. It's going to get dirty. It's going to get muddy. But that's okay because what you represent is far greater to me in worth than this coat. So a salutation fit for a king. And finally, jubilation fit for a king. The things that the crowd were chanting from Luke's gospel, we hear, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's an Old Testament messianic quote. And Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we know they were also shouting, Hosanna, son of David, that messianic title that the Davidic covenant taught that God promised there would be a king in the line of David on his throne forever. And this is why the, some Pharisees in the crowd had said, tell your disciples to be quiet. Rebuke them. They're, they're calling you a king. They're calling you Messiah. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's right. They got it right. And even if I did quiet them, all of nature will proclaim that I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am Messiah. I am Son of David. So that begs the question, if Jesus knew these people were going to reject him just a few days later, why would he allow this kind of praise and adulation? Right? Why not correct them right now? Hey, time out. Do you guys know why you're praising my name? What do you really think I'm going to do for you? But he doesn't. And I believe the reason is because Jesus is the King and the Messiah, and it was fitting that he receive this praise and honor and glory, even if the people's hearts didn't have the right motives behind their praise. It is right for him to receive this public praise and adulation. In fact, it will become evidence against these very same people when they yell crucify him. And so when he's resurrected, he can say, and we hear the disciples preaching this, that Jesus, the one who you guys were cheering one day and crucifying the next, he is the Messiah. And the scriptures say they were cut to the heart and they said, what have we done? What should we do? And Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized. So I want to draw a couple principles here halfway through the sermon. 
Biblical principle number one. Even Christians, even you and I worship Jesus with mixed motives. Or praise him with misguided expectations. Everyone here today, myself included, we gather in the name of Jesus, we praise his name, but we all secretly have brought our own expectations here to church of who Jesus should be in my life and what he should do for me. Even while you were singing about the cross, chances are you were thinking about Yeah, but if I just had this, then I would truly be happy. And it's always one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, and we miss the main thing. Here's the good news. For those who are in Christ, God forgives us of even this. In fact, the scriptures indicate that our our praises are even sanctified before they reach the ears of God, as it were. The Lord inhabits our prayers and makes them into an acceptable sacrifice. Right? When we don't even know what to pray, the scriptures say the Holy Spirit, with groanings too deep for words, is changing your prayers for you, so you're praying in a way that is acceptable to God. But Jesus also sanctifies us so that as we grow in spiritual maturity, we should, with ever increasing measure, be worshiping Him for who He really is and what He's really done and what He is going to do. It is true that when we're new believers and we're all excited to praise Jesus, it's often for things that. Later we're going to find out, oh, it's not what I thought it was going to be. And hopefully you're finding out it's better than what I thought it was going to be. Honestly, most of us when we came to Jesus, whether we knew it or not, for the first time we were coming to him probably as health, wealth, and prosperity people. He's going to fix all my problems. He's going to make me happy. He's going to be the answer to all my dreams. He's going to make me successful. People will finally give me the, the praise that I deserve. Right? So people come to Jesus and they're like, I'm hurting because people have let me down. Well, Jesus will never let you down. He thinks you're wonderful and amazing. Yeah, I know, I am. Right? And then later as you grow in Christ, you, you sing songs like we sang this morning. Like, you are good, you are good when there's nothing good in me. That's not what new believers sing. There's lots good in me and by golly, it's about time somebody recognized what a infinitely lovable person I really am. Well, that's not amazing grace on the cross. How about we're loved when there's nothing there really to love? That's amazing grace. That's something I can worship about, but 
in my fallenness, I don't want to worship God for that. That doesn't make me look too good. And you're tired of all your problems, your basket full of problems that you're behind in your bills and, and people come to this church and they see this glorious building and we have people come all week who, who want help financially and, and that's okay. We, we can help meet their needs so they know that this God who can meet this little need is ready to meet your biggest need. But we've had people come asking for help from this church and they're like, come on, you know you guys have millions Cough it up. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what, what, what they think we've got hidden. Like, there's a secret room with the national treasure back there, right? So a corollary principle here is that I want us to have grace for newer believers. You know, they're, they're on fire for God and, and they're praising Jesus' name and, and then you're like, oh, they're praising His name because they think Jesus is going to do X, Y, and Z for them. Maybe I should go over and burst their bubble. Okay, don't burst their bubble. You know, speak truth and love at the appropriate time. You know, you invite them to Bible study and they get to a passage where they're like, hey, what does this mean to count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials? That's not what I signed up for. Sure you did. You just didn't know you did. You know, I was, well, why didn't you tell me when I walked the aisle? Because nobody walks the aisle. If you say, who wants trials? Come on forward. Right? Well, we were going to get to that part. And hopefully, every good church gets to that part. But do we need to be the church that makes sure everybody, right when they rock through the door, hey, if you're going to worship Jesus this morning, make sure it's not because he's going to make all your dreams come true. Right? Do you understand the balance there, the speaking truth and love and picking your moments and I mean, if, if Jesus will let an entire crowd that's going to shout crucify him a week later praise him, let him praise him. Let him praise him. Right? You know what they're teaching in the church down the road? I don't know. They're praising Jesus when they figure out that, hey, wait a minute. I haven't gotten wealthy and I haven't gotten healed then we're ready to answer their questions biblically. This world needs more praise of Jesus. Yes, it needs authentic praise of Jesus, but let's start with praise for Jesus. That's where Jesus started. Biblical principle number two. This one was a hard one for me this week. This is where I was really... Convicted. Jesus loves people even when he knows that they have misguided expectations for him and may reject him when they hear the truth from him. 
He didn't tell these people, oh, knock it off. You guys are going to shout crucify him in less than a week. Right? Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the... He didn't stop loving Peter. In fact, it's like he loved him more in Peter's weakness. You know, Peter's like, I'll never deny you, Christ. And, and that would have been where I would have been like, I'm done. I'm out of here. You know, Jesus is more like, well, we'll see. You know? And then there's Peter on the beach. He's, or he's in the boat. He's going back to fishing. He's demoralized, dejected. And there's Jesus on the shore. Hey, Peter, you still want a relationship with me? You bet. Dive in the water and swim to go see his Lord. You, you can... You and I can still choose to love people even when they are angrily disappointed in us because you didn't meet their misguided or unrealistic or unspoken expectations. You, you can, Jesus did it, and we're supposed to be like Jesus. We can do this. And, and, We can love those who've let us down and haven't met our expectations. Perhaps they really didn't let you down. Perhaps you had unrealistic expectations for them. Right? We extend grace because we know we need grace. We extend grace because we know we need grace. Hey, you're disappointed in someone? Guess what? There's people disappointed in you. Huh? What? I mean, I know why I'm disappointed in so-and-so, but what, what is there to be disappointed in me? There might be actual things that are worthy of disappointment. Yes, this is a fallen world. We are sinners. We extend grace because we need grace. But then sometimes we're just upset with one another because... We had high hopes and expectations that we should have never placed on one another. We have this saying about putting too much freight on that train. It was never designed to carry that kind of weight. Or you put too much freight on that boat and you sunk it. Right? Let, 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 me, let me take something that should be relatively safe as an illustration this happens all the time. In fact, there's like a whole movie about it that I don't recommend. But we're all planning like our family vacations, right? And it's, it's going to be awesome. I've waited all year for this thing. I can see it in my mind. It's nirvana. It's paradise. And it never lives up to your expectations. And you spent so much money and the worst thing about those vacations are now you have to go home and you feel more drained than when you left. And you're like, great, I was counting on this vacation to recharge my batteries and I'm worse off than when, than before I left. And we all can kind of laugh and chuckle about that, right? Especially if it's Disneyland and you dropped enough for a second mortgage. Right, and it was. It, we set records today. It was the busiest day Disneyland has ever seen. 
It was like one of those puzzles with the little squares and there's only one empty piece and you have to, right? If we chart our course just right, maybe we can get from the Jungle Cruise to Indiana Jones in an hour. (laughs) How much did we spend on this? And my four favorite rides were closed for Imagineering. come back later, you won't wait. You can't wait to see what we're going to do with this ride. You're like, I can't afford to come back later. I want to see it now. We can laugh at that, but how sad when we load unrealistic expectations onto marriage, raising children, right? You see the young couple struggling. I know what will fix everything. Let's have a baby, (laughs) that that great Jim Gaffigan joke what's it like to have a fourth child it's like you're drowning and they threw you a baby right (laughs) this poor couple they're drowning and they're like I know we'll have a baby well babies are wonderful they're a gift from the Lord but not if it's your little messiah and uh marriage counselor and who knows what else you're wrapping into this this bundle of joy like we thought sleep deprivation would be a good thing because it was fun in college not And I know our, our, our graduates, many are getting ready to take off for college. And it's like, ah, oh, going to college, it's going to be amazing. Go talk to a sophomore or a junior at college. Can't wait to get out of here. I'm broke. Tired of eating top ramen. I want to go to the real world where all the fun is happening. And right, we're, we're all out in the real world going, gosh, college sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> I hate my job. I can't wait till I'm retired. And I talk to you retired people and you're like, I'm bored. Me and my wife are snapping at each other. You know. So why is it that there's always something better than what we have right now? I don't know. Adam and Eve had paradise. And they thought there was more. Uh, I guess... We've inherited discontentment. So the root of these misguided expectations is is discontentment. Well, this is going to fix everything. Well, what really needs to be fixed? Is Is your life really so bad that you need something to come along and fix everything? Or do you need to step back and go, you know what? It's not that bad. In fact... Life's pretty good. Life's pretty good. And when you know the Savior, life is really good because you're not putting all your hopes and dreams into this life. Like, perfect is coming and we've never seen perfect. We can't even imagine. We think perfect is what we have now just without the annoyances. Oh, people, we are setting our sights way too low. 
What's it like to be in the presence of Almighty God with no sin? What's it like to be with brothers and sisters in Christ with perfect fellowship and unity and perfect love? I don't know. I have only gotten a a very small taste of it. And I think that's the deal, is that's what our hearts are yearning for, and we're not going to find it here. But we we can find this much of it and be thankful for that much, knowing the rest is coming later. Stop demanding heaven on earth and look forward to heaven in heaven and be thankful for any bit of heaven on earth we get now. Now, I always got to throw a word of caution in here. I needed this for myself. Heart check. We are not Jesus. So as I'm saying, hey, you you can love people who are upset with you because they had misguided expectations for you and now they're mad at you. You can love them because Jesus can love them. Well, be careful because it's just a short step to a martyr complex. Oh, look at me loving all these horrible people. I'll be the bigger person. It's like, well, probably somewhere in their disappointment with you is a kernel of truth or more. Read this, this great Spurgeon quote where he's like, hey, if, 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 if somebody's mad at you or disappointed at you, be thankful because you're actually worse than they think you are. <laughs> like, uh, am I? Yeah, let's look at the cross together. Doesn't the cross tell us we're worse than we think we are? We just don't know what perfection is. So we judge ourselves by a, a very weak standard. I'm pretty good people. Why would people have a problem with me? Well, look at the cross. Why, why don't people have a problem with you? That's the, that's the more honest question. I mean, if, if God had to die for us, we should be asking... Why isn't my life worse than it is? It really is a miracle that we all get together and don't kill each other. Right? Look at Cain and Abel. I mean, what did he really have to kill his brother about? Nothing. Hey, bring your sacrifice. It'll go well with you. Discontentment, envy, jealousy. So let's move our focus now from how, you know, how is Jesus able to do this? Love these people who are going to reject him. And now let's look at the hearts of the people and, and ask, you know, how did the crowd miss the truth about Jesus? It, it'll be a cautionary tale to us because Whatever they did to miss the truth about Jesus, that's probably what we're guilty of as well. Jesus said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, right? Like, they had their eyes on the wrong prize. And they had their eyes on the wrong prize because they had misdefined their greatest need and their greatest problem. 
If you had known that the Savior of the world is in your presence and He's going to die and absorb the wrath of the Father on Himself so that you could have peace with God forever, you would not be disappointed. So biblical principle number three. Human beings, that's us. Everybody falls into this category. We look to a Savior to solve all of our problems and conquer all our enemies and heal all of our wounds. And you're like saying, well, that's not a bad thing. That's what saviors do. And Jesus is that Savior. Except as God, it's His prerogative to define our problems and our enemies and our wounds. Oh, well... What if his definition doesn't match up with mine? Can I still worship that Jesus? Like, if they're my problems and my enemies and my wounds, shouldn't I get to define them? Isn't this the culture we live in? Right? You get to determine your reality and your identity and your narrative and your story. Graduates, don't fall for it. I don't know where you're going to school, but this is what the culture is going to teach you and a good portion of our universities is going to teach you. Right? Because they want you to come and give them lots of money. So you can hear them tell you what you want to hear. I can be anything. I can define my future. I can define myself. I can define my problems. I can define... My victimhood, which means I can define my oppressors. I can define who's wounding me. What a terrible thing to suddenly have a finger pointed at you as the oppressor or as the enemy. What do I do? Or what didn't I do? Therefore, Jesus gets to define and determine the solution to our problems. If if he's God, and he is, he gets to determine and define our problems, our enemies, and our wounds. And as you grow in Christ, you learn more and more that, you know what your, your greatest problem is? You. And you know who your greatest enemy is? You. Yes, there's Satan in the world, but Satan in the world would have no power over us if it wasn't for our flesh. We we gladly walk right into the traps set for us. And so, we have all these Wonderful things God has given us that we've turned into our saviors and they were never designed to be our savior. This is like the slow time of year in sports. There's just not much going on. So uh, NBA wrapped up and Stanley Cup finishing up. Football season hasn't started yet. But you you know what is exciting this time of year is draft day. Oh, he's going to solve all our problems. Yeah, that's the quarterback that's going to finally win a Super Bowl for the Cleveland Browns. Come on, people. 
It's like we went from 0 and 16 to 1 and 15 for $10 million a year. We, we bought one win. But people do that, right? This, this is the year. Uh, UCLA just hired a new football coach. Yeah, because we win football championships. Come on. That's not what we do. But hey, whether you like UCLA or not, your taxes are paying for the highest paid state employee now. The UCLA football coach. Hope you're happy. <laughs> your, your tax dollars at work. Where are our priorities as a culture? It's funny, the very people in charge of the UC system who are pointing the fingers at us that our priorities are in the wrong place (laughs) just drop the dime and change on some guy that happened to turn Oregon into a good football team. Well, he could do it here then. Maybe. Schools maybe getting a new principal, right? I taught in Elk Grove, which back in the day was the fastest growing city in the U.S. They were building a new high school every two years, like like a high school bigger than Tehachapi High every two years to keep up with the growth. And I was teaching at the old high school at Elk Grove High. And all my colleagues were like, we're going over to Laguna, brand new school, Brand new principle. It's going to be awesome. No more problems. No more discouragement. And I'm like, same old textbook. Same old students. Pretty building. And then they finished that one. And then they were like, they're building one out on Bond in East Elk Grove. It's going to be awesome. Like, don't do that to the poor principal. Like he's going to solve all of our educational system problems. Moving to a new city, buying a new house, starting at a new school, got a new job, new baby, going to a new church. It's going to solve all my problems. It's going to fix all my disappointments. Oh, honey, (laughs) you're going to take them with you. Why don't you stay and work on them here with people who know you really well? Aren't going to let you get away with lying to yourself. When we become discontent with our lives, we look for someone else to blame, an institution or a person, and then we pick something new to be our savior. (gasps) it's like my heart's breaking for Pastor John Barnes at Stallion Spring. New pastor! It's going to fix everything. There's a new pastor starting at Mountain Bible next Sunday. Young guy preaching on Father's Day. There should be excitement and there should be optimism, but not this guy's going to fix all our woes and pack the seats. You got Henry Schaefer Jr. at the Tuesday night, Men of Tehachapi. I'm not really sure exactly what it is, but people are excited about it, and they're excited about 
God and they're excited about Henry and I don't know what kinds of expectations they have for him. And Henry's a pretty positive guy, but he's a human being too. And there's lots of people going to that thing who are disenchanted with the church for all her warts and moles. And so they're trying the unchurch. It sounds like it's a really nice Bible study for men. Can't it just be that? Men of Tehachapi, Christian men, get together, pray for one another, and then go back to your church and serve there. And hopefully that's what people are using it for. You know, I debated whether or not to get, to get a little personal here, but I think it, I've been told that, Pastor, if you're not going to be real with us, so I'll get a little personal here. It, it's hard as a pastor, and I'm sure Andy can nod over there. You, you, you love the people God brings to your flock and you're excited about what God is doing at your church, and for whatever reason, people are at a season in their life where they're just disappointed and down and discontent, and somehow the church gets blamed for it, and the leaders get blamed. And certainly there's improvements that can be made here, and your leaders are human beings. They make mistakes, for sure. But as much as I love our tiny little town here, because it's so tight and Everybody knows each other and you can't go to the market without bumping into 23 people you know. Well, when I go to the market, I bump into three people who don't like me. And, and they've made it personal. And you're like, oh man. Right? And that's, it's a sad thing. It's, it's a really sad thing. So I'm not looking for sympathy and poor pastor and hugs afterwards. I'm not going to sit at the back lining up for... (laughs) And I'm not saying I'm Jesus. You know, they were saying, Hosanna, and then crucify him. But it's, it's like that. And I've done it to people as well, and so have you. And we've got to stop. And so how do we stop? And I'll tell you, the answer is that I've never heard a grateful person walk away from something. Why would you? You know, this is great, but I'm going to go over here. You know, it just doesn't happen. And that's hard. It's hard sometimes when I'm doing marital counseling and it's like, okay, we've kind of gotten past all the issues, but at the end of the day, the person, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is, why does he or she want to walk away from me? Generally, people don't walk away from something that is good. Now, that's not to put all the blame on a spouse that's been abandoned, but don't we all know we're sinners and did we not contribute to the demise of the relationship or the friendship or the fellowship? That's why Jesus says to 
Get the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly the speck in your brother's. If, if we rightly see what God has given us, these gifts of family and church and children and spouses and our jobs and don't load too much freight on it, we can enjoy these things for what God intended them to be, blessings in our life. But when we start to convince ourselves it's, it's not only not a blessing, but it's the greatest curse in my life, then it's bad, bad, nothing but bad. And we spiral down, spiral down, spiral down. Principle number four, we undermine our relationship with Jesus and other people by setting unrealistic expectations in our hearts. We expect others to agree with our definition of problems and our plans and our dreams and our hurts. And then we demand that they respond accordingly to our quote-unquote reasonable and often unspoken expectations. And so I say to me, I say to you, let God's word determine our expectations for the things he's created. Family, marriage, church, careers, even family vacations. Repent of judging people for not living up to your expectations. Repent of judging God for not living up to your expectations. (gasps) Yes, we do. We judge God for not living up to our expectations. And thus we hear a proclamation fit for a king. Jesus pronounces judgment over Jerusalem. and, And he can pronounce that kind of judgment because he is the king. This horrible, terrible thing that would happen to Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Surrounded, besieged, starved the people out, and then section by section slaughter the inhabitants of the city. And then burn it and tear it down. This terrible judgment was actually fulfilled in A.D. 70, but it becomes a picture for us of what ultimately awaits those who continue to reject Jesus for who he really is. It's it's terrible, it's frightening, it's scary. And, And yet the other side of that coin is, if you will gladly receive Jesus as Lord and Savior for the Lord he really is and the Savior he really is, not for who you want him to be, but for who he is. And not for what you want him to do for you, but what he has done for you and what he is going to do for you according to his word. Then he is ready to be your king and your Savior, and he says, and even your friend. And he will restore all of your broken dreams, not by giving you the dreams you wanted, but by resetting them realistically. But if you don't, then the metaphor ends up being a picture of what happens in our life when we have unrealistic expectations. Devastation follows. Broken fellowship, broken families, broken marriages. Discontentment is a cancer that just eats 
at the heart of all these wonderful things God has blessed his people with. So I'd, I'd like us this week to ask, what expectations do I really have of Jesus? Are they biblical expectations? Joyful Christians are thankful for the love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross. They expect suffering in this world, but know Jesus will give them all things they need to endure. We're we're joyful, suffering people. That's compelling to the world. Joyful, suffering people. Secondly, what unreasonable expectations might you have for Jesus and other people in your life? It's probably almost easier to go to Jesus and repent of it than go and talk to another human being. But start with Jesus and then go and apologize. Restore fellowship. I'm sorry I I had unrealistic expectations for you. I loaded way too much freight on something that was never designed to hold that much. I wanted you to be my savior and you were offering friendship. I wanted you to be my savior. You were offering fellowship as husband and wife. Maybe you need to talk to your children. I, I wanted you to, f- to fulfill me as a parent by making me proud, and you do make me proud, but I missed it. I wanted you to be this. Repent and seek forgiveness, and I, I, I guarantee you great joy is waiting on the other side of that act. Great, great joy and blessing. We can finally enjoy the things God has given us to enjoy for what they are. And look forward to enjoying heaven for what heaven is supposed to be. Not expecting that here. Father, give us the faith to believe this is true. Because we are weak and we doubt it. We want to stay upset and hurt and wounded. Oh, Father, forgive us and release us from that bondage. Make us into people of great joy and gratitude, thanking one another and joining voices to thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what you will do for us in Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.